Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled Jacksonian Democracy. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, the bureaucratic shakeup. Well, students, I hope that you enjoyed your two weeks off, essentially two weeks off at this point. I apologize for the technological issues I've been having on my end. I will endeavor to make sure that we get the content that you need to complete this course in a timely fashion moving forward. As I said in a previous email, please keep an eye out on Tuesdays and Thursdays for when I release the PowerPoints and the podcasts. You do not, you do not have to look at these at any specific time. Do it at your own pace, but please do review the material because it will be on the final. In terms of your assignments, you have one coming up, which is a documentary review. Everything you need to know is on the prompt itself on Blackboard. The other assignment that is coming up, obviously, is the primary source analysis, which is towards the end of the semester. That is, go again, all on Blackboard. Everything you need to know is there, and I will have a small podcast relating to that material should you need to uh, have more information uh, for your ability to complete it. And then lastly, we are going to have the final as normal, take-home final, so it's not going to be any problem on your end. But I will say it is going to be far easier uh, than the midterm, simply because it is not fair to you, the students, to have the same expectations given a global pandemic. Um, other than that, if you have any questions or comments, please email me. I'm going to post uh, additional materials uh, in the form of videos, uh, YouTube videos, and other things to keep you entertained, maybe, or at the very least, uh, give you some extra educational perspectives. So keep an eye out for that. Anything I can do to help you, let me know. Honestly, um, this class is not that important. I mean, obviously, I find history extremely important. I believe it's critical to forming uh, a good citizen of these states united. Uh, but in terms of a global pandemic, it doesn't rank up there. So, you know, let's keep perspective. You got other courses which are more demanding. Focus on that. I won't feel um, hurt <laughs> by uh, practicality. So be smart, be safe. Let's get this thing uh, through this thing together. I believe in you all. That being said, let's get into some history. I'm going to start today's lecture about a story, uh, Jackson, or one of Jackson's most famous duels. Now, Jackson had what we would say a fiery temper, and he quarreled with a lot of individuals. So in 1806, in Tennessee, Jackson had a rivalry with another slave owner and a horse breeder called Charles Dickinson. Uh, Dickinson publicly called Jackson a coward and a scoundrel for reneging on a horse bed. And then, uh, worse, he called Rachel Jackson a bigamist. And Rachel Jackson is obviously the wife of Andrew Jackson. And if there's something you don't do, it's insult another man's wife. Well, Jackson and Dickinson have a duel. And Dickinson is known to have one of the best shots in the state. And so, Jackson decides to let him go first. Pretty ballsy, if you think about it. Well, Dickinson fires and hits Jackson in his chest, or in his lower abdomen, I suppose. Well, Jackson puts his hand over his wound to stem the flow of blood, levels his pistol at Dickinson, takes careful aim, fires, psh, and that's all she wrote about Charles Dickinson. The lesson here, ladies and gentlemen, do not mess with Andrew Jackson, because he will kill you. On Inauguration Day, which was March 4th, 1829, a crazy party erupted at the White House. 
Jackson invited all of his supporters to come to the White House and celebrate his victory over John Quincy Adams. And Washington's elite is going to be shocked by what they see. People spit tobacco all over the place. There are tobacco stains on the rugs and the drapes of the White House. There are cigarette burns on the furniture. Alcohol, party foul, is spilled everywhere. And the floors are muddy because of people's muddy boots. In an effort to save the White House, the stewards, or the men who serve and give the refreshments and food at any given party, well, they decide to put the whiskey punch outside. Obviously, that's how you draw the mob outside. And that's where they go. The party rages for hours. It becomes a giant drunken festival, for lack of a better term. And to the old guard, the old guard politicians, this looks like uncouth frontiersmen and his drunken friends taking over the government. Where is the responsibility, they say? Well, in Jackson's first day in office, he did what is now routine in modern politics. He removed many officials that had been hired by former administrations, and he replaced them with his friends and his supporters. Now, Jackson called this rotation in office, while his critics dubbed it the spoil system. Now, on the one hand, it makes sense. You want people around you who agree with you and who will do what you say. But the downside is that you are putting less than qualified people in positions of power because you owe them a favor or because they are your friend, not because of any intrinsic talent that they have on their part. And so again, positive and negatives with all things in life. Now, one of the first things that Jackson did to shake up Washington's polite society was the Eaton Affair. His Secretary of War, Senator Eaton, had married his mistress after the death of her husband at sea. Calhoun's wife and the other elite ladies of Washington refused to speak to the woman or to invite her to any social gatherings. And Jackson was enraged. He felt it was the same slap in the face that the elites had done to his wife Rachel, and he blamed the same snobbery for her death. So Jackson made it his mission to force her upon society, and the cabinet became deeply divided until he was forced to clean house at the end of his term. So here we have infighting about polite society affecting the way the government works. And it stays that way to this day. Now, Jackson also changed the way that the president oversaw legislation. He vetoed more congressional bills than all of his predecessors combined. Lastly, Jackson used what we would consider very class war type language. He constantly referred to the special interests against the people. He always referred to his supporters as the farmers, the mechanics, and the laborers. Now, today, we think of capitalism, banking, finance, and etc. as always entrenched in American history. But Jackson reminds us that much of this history had a us-versus-them mentality. The politics of class conflict, of the people versus the interests. And so, when you hear someone saying, well, that is socialism, is it really? Because Jackson illustrates that this type of class language, this focus on the people, this fight against banks and capitalism, this is American as apple pie. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Indian Removal. In the late 1820s, the
the state of Georgia was in conflict with numerous native tribes. White settlers wanted their lands, but the Indians had already signed numerous treaties with the federal government, which had already taken much of their land, and these men refused to budge anymore. Well, things came to a head as white settlers murdered and stole native land, and the federal government refused to help them. Then, gold was discovered in Indian territory, and the torrent of settlers into the region could not be stopped. In December 1830, Andrew Jackson presented his first annual message to Congress, which said, quote, What good man would prefer a country covered with forests and ranged by a few thousand savages to our extensive republic, studded with cities, towns, and prosperous farms? embellished with all of the improvements which art can devise or industry can execute, occupied by more than 12 million happy people and filled with all of the blessings of liberty, civilization, and religion, end quote. So Jackson is setting this up as savagery versus civilization. Well, most whites, especially in the South and West, support this, whereas many Northerners disapprove and you begin to see a number of plays called Metamora come about, which talk about England or New England's own history with Native American removal. And it's very interesting that a play or a cultural production will draw on the past history to make contemporary political points. That's probably something you should think about. Well, in 1830 in Congress, they passed the Indian Removal Act, and this gives the president the power to negotiate treaties with Indians to relocate them west of the Mississippi. Now, many individual Indians could choose to stay behind, but they would become the citizens of a state, not their tribe, and then they would be viewed as free persons of color, basically equivalent to a freed or a former slave. So that would put them at a disadvantage, racially speaking, and would also prove uh, problematic considering many Cherokees bought into the idea of African inferiority because they themselves own slaves. Well, in Georgia, the Cherokees are one of what we call the five civilized tribes, and they refused to sign this treaty to move them west. And when the Georgia government tried to force them, they took the fight to the courts. And the case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court in the case of Worcester versus Georgia in 1832. Well, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is John Marshall, and he rules that Georgia's law could not regulate what the Cherokees did. Well, Jackson dismisses the court's decision and says, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Just a note here, Supreme Court does not enforce their decisions. That's what the executive branch should do. So here we see Jackson approbating his constitutional required powers to enforce court decisions. That's what makes men like Jackson so dangerous. Well, in 1835, the Jackson administration signs a treaty with a small group of Cherokees who falsely claim to speak for the whole tribe. And this treaty says the Cherokees would vacate Georgia in return for $5 million and land in what is called Indian Territory, which is modern-day Oklahoma. So most Cherokees are going to refuse to support this treaty, and they are going to refuse to leave 
for now. And we'll pick up with that story a little bit later. For now, please turn to the next slide entitled Civil War. You may recall that the Tariff of Abominations was the highest protective tariff in the U.S. history up to that point, and tensions had continued to escalate over that controversial tariff, and no one knew for sure where Jackson stood on the issue. He had previously supported states' rights, but what about the tariff? Well, at an April 1830 banquet in honor of Thomas Jefferson's birthday, the main speaker was the South Carolinian Senator Robert Hayne, and he spoke about strict construction and states' rights. And at the end of the speech, he asked Jackson if he would like to offer a toast. It's part of protocol. Well, Jackson stands up, looks them all dead in the eye, and says, quote, Our federal union, it must and shall be preserved. End quote. Well, John C. Calhoun is sitting there, glass shaking in hand. He gets up, looks Jackson in the face, and says, quote, The union, next to our liberties, the most dear. Well, this is a slap in the face to Jackson, and he knew it. And this illustrates that this fight is going to tear Jackson's own administration apart. In 1832, Congress passed and Jackson signed a bill to somewhat lower the tariff, though it was still a protective tariff. And this upset South Carolina, even though they've just gotten a little bit of a compromise here. Well, in November of that year, South Carolina nullifies the tariff and said it would not collect the tariff within South Carolina's borders, and it even threatened to secede if the federal government tried to interfere. And this is what we call the nullification crisis. Well, in December of 1832, the South Carolina legislature allocated money for arms and troops, and Calhoun resigns as the vice president of the United States, and he returns to D.C. as a senator. And Jackson is outraged, threatening to hang Calhoun and the other nullifiers. Jackson went to Congress and asked them to pass the force bill, which gave him the power to use federal troops to enforce the law in South Carolina. Jackson dispatched troops into forts at the Charleston Harbor, and South Carolina, as a result, called out its militia, and it looked very likely that a civil war might happen. Well, in 1833, Henry Clay, who by this time was a senator from Kentucky, he joined with Calhoun and others to pass a compromise bill that would gradually reduce the tariff over the next 10 years. And on March 2, 1833, Jackson signed the new tariff and the force bill simultaneously into law. Well, the South Carolina legislature responded by repealing its ordinance of nullification, but in a symbolic F.U., they decided to nullify the Force Act. Well, Jackson's just going to take that on the cheek. Civil war has been averted for now, but South Carolina learned an important lesson. It is dangerous business to go about disunion by your own. They learn that they are strength in numbers and they will quietly set out to spread the gospel of disunion among Southerners for the next 28 years, which will ultimately culminate in the American Civil War. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Bank War. Andrew Jackson hated the Second National Bank of the United States. 
he believed it was unconstitutional and it was a tool of the wealthy. Across the country, many interior farmers complained that the bank's state branches did not provide them the loans and seemed to favor the wealthy merchants and developers. These complaints reached Jackson, and he was looking for an opportunity to do something. So Jackson delivered a scathing address about the bank, which set the stage for a political fight. Now, technically, the bank's charter did not expire until 1836, but the president of the Second Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, sought to renew it in 1832. Well, Congress approved the recharter, but Jackson vetoed it. Jackson was re-elected in a huge victory in 1832 on the backs of a great deal of rhetoric about the evil of the bank. Well, Jackson's new vice president was a man named Martin Van Buren, and he took great delight in defeating National Republican candidate Henry Clay, who he personally hated for the corrupt bargain, and he thus resumes the bank war in 1832. Jackson said that public money was unsafe in Biddle's hands, so he unilaterally took the money out of the National Bank, and he put it in various state banks. Now, this eventually... Uh, rendered the National Bank impotent. And in response, the Senate, led by Clay, Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, formally censured Jackson in 1834 for abusing his office. This is the only time in U.S. history that a president has been formally censured by the legislature. In 1834, Jackson's enemies were comparing him to a corrupt monarch and started calling themselves the Whigs, and they would eventually form the Whig Party. This was named after the Whigs of England, a group of people who opposed the large bureaucracies of the British government, and more importantly, the dictatorial powers of the king. Now, the Whig Party doesn't have an ideology yet. It just has a great deal of aversion and hatred to everything that Andrew Jackson represents. And as you can see from the PowerPoint slide, that picture there, King Andrew I, look at the different parts of the cartoon. Notice what the words say on different parts of it. It is telling you a story. Remember, look at images as though they are texts. Figure out what that author, what that artist is trying to tell you. Please advance to the next slide entitled Political Realignment. Up to this point, we have dealt with what we call proto-parties, like Jefferson's National Republicans and Adams' Federalists. We see that after the War of 1812, the Federalists die out, and a single National Republican Party emerges under James Monroe and John Quincy Adams. But factionalism destroys this party, and two new parties would be created whose issues swirled around whether or not you supported or opposed Andrew Jackson and, later on, the market revolution. Now, the Whigs include former National Republicans and others united in their hatred for Jackson's policies, and they are led by Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. They support improvements, both morally and economically, in an active national government, they support the National Bank, they support internal improvements, and they support high tariffs. They say that these things will benefit everyone. They usually opposed expansion, 
because they said we should improve what we have rather than expand beyond that. Well, the Democratic Party, which is usually called the American democracy, they label the Whigs as the aristocracy. They believe they're nothing more than Federalists in all but name. The Democrats emphasize states' rights and individual liberty. They identify themselves with the farmers, the mechanics, and the laborers, basically the working class. They adopt a strict constructionist view of the constitutional government. They oppose financial monopolies like the National Bank. They are the party of white supremacy, and they usually favor expansion in new territory, especially in the American Southwest, so that slavery can expand. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Prelude to Panic. 1836 was Andrew Jackson's last year in office, and the economy was booming. Cotton prices were high, and the federal government was making so much money off of land sales and tariffs that it completely paid off the entire national debt for the only time in U.S. history. And it still had money left over, which gave Congress the ability to help states fund projects. But Jackson was still nervous about the rise of wildcat banks. Wildcat banks were frontier banks that had been given a large amount of money um, as a way to uh, take that money away from the Second National Bank. Well, these wildcat banks were printing a huge amount of paper money, and they were speculating in land sales to a great degree. They were concocting real estate schemes with investor deposits. Remember that. Playing around in the real estate market with people's investments. Sounds a lot like 2007, doesn't it? Well, anyway. Andrew Jackson issues his specie circular, which said that large tracts of public land could only be bought with specie, or gold and silver, not paper money. It's an okay idea at the time. But in the long run, this will drain these banks of gold and silver. And without this hard currency to back up paper money, it will undermine the confidence in paper money, which will then lead to a credit crunch and create widespread bank closures. And this will ultimately cause the Panic of 1837, which we will talk about a little bit more uh, in Martin Van Buren's administration. Well... Jackson left office hated and revered. He retires to his old mansion in the Hermitage. And on his ride home, someone asks him if he had any regrets. And he stated that I did not shoot Henry Clay and I didn't hang John C. Calhoun. That is why we do not mess with Andrew Jackson. One last Jackson story for you. In 1835, Jackson was very old. He was still his fiery self. Well, he's walking through Washington, D.C., and an unemployed house painter named Lawrence approaches Jackson um, while walking near the Capitol. Lawrence pulls a pistol and fires on Jackson, and it misfires. He then pulls a second pistol, levels it at Jackson and pulls the trigger, and it misfires. The enraged Jackson takes out his cane and begins bludgeoning the man to death. He is beating up this guy, and Jackson's entourage has to pull him off of him. 
I mean, there's no such thing as a secret service in this day. So here's an assassin who's come up to the president of the United States, leveled two pistols at him, both misfired, and Jackson is just beating the utter hell out of him. And his own guys have to pull him off this bloodied guy. Now, historians actually did a test to check these pistols, and the odds of two Derringers misfiring is 1 to 125,000 in terms of odds. Again, do not mess with Andrew Jackson. And by the way, I understand that Jackson is a problematic individual. He did a lot of terrible things. He was a slave owner. He did Indian removal. But you can also be impressed with how fiery he was, to say the least. Please advance to the next slide, entitled MVB Administration. The election of 1836, Jackson did not try to run for a third term. Again, he is solidifying Washington's precedent of only having two terms. Well, his vice president, Martin Van Buren, is going to run against three different Whig candidates. And what happens when you have three candidates from the same party? That's right. You split the vote, and you hand the other side an easy victory. Well, Martin Van Buren's administration is going to be dominated by the Panic of 1837, and it's caused by a variety of factors. Falling cotton prices, a decline in British purchasing and investments in the United States, the fallout from the species circular, I mean, all of that gold and silver used to pay for lands, which means there's no longer any hard currency around, which just depreciates paper currency. Well, Martin Van Buren gets blamed for what becomes the worst depression in U.S. history up to that point, even though it was Andrew Jackson's fault. And always remember that. Just because an economic downturn is happening in one administration doesn't mean that the effects of the previous administration did not cause that. See George W. Bush for an example. The other major event that dominated Martin Van Buren's administration is the removal of the Native Americans. The Creek tribe had been removed before the Cherokee, and they suffered a very harsh removal, losing over half of their population. Now, we're going to talk about the Cherokee removal in more details in our next class, but suffice it to say that during the Cherokee removal, from 1838 to 1839, 7,000 troops under General Winfield Scott, a general who will become famous during the Mexican-American War, they will march the Cherokee West across Georgia and Arkansas. And in fact, if you go through northwest Arkansas right now, you can see many signposts to the Trail of Tears. Now, the Trail of Tears is a very poorly planned route where this removal is conducted in the midst of winter without any necessary rest stops or accommodations or supplies. And as a result, out of the 18,000 Cherokee men, women, and children who were forcibly removed from their homelands, 4,000 die along the way. These are all terrible things. But I want you to remember one important thing. Martin Van Buren is the MVP for creating the second American party system and the Democratic Party. He was an astute politician who knew how to appeal to constituencies in both sections. He was a highly skilled and influential politician who had a very disappointing presidency. So regardless for, of all of his issues, MVB is the MVP. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Election of 1840. 
before I continue, I, I want to make a slight point that I may have missed earlier. If you go back to the political realignment slide, you will see a bullet point for the second American party system. And what that refers to is the period from the 1830s to the mid-1850s where the Whigs and the Democrats battled one another in uh, the election cycles. It is a period of intense political competition between these two parties. And it is also marked with extreme voter turnout, as we will see. So, okay, now let's get back to the 1840 election slide and continue. The Whigs looked for a non-controversial and more popular candidate to oppose Martin Van Buren. They decided to bypass Henry Clay and settled on the old war hero, William Henry Harrison. Harrison had been a territorial governor, a hero of the War of 1812, and an Indian fighter, and the Whigs made him look like a less dangerous version than Jackson. In the campaign of 1840, the parties began to use similar methods that modern elections use, like the various tactics in electioneerings. So for example, they use mass political gatherings like rallies, parades, bonfires, and poll raisings. For instance, in Little Rock, the Whigs rolled out a canoe carrying 26 women dressed in white to represent the 26 states. Now in, times, in terms of the rhetoric, Harrison launched the Log Cabin and Hard Cider campaign slogan, as well as the alliteration of Tippy Canoe and Tyler Too, named for uh, the great battle that Harrison fought at Tippy Canoe, and then also his vice president was named Tyler. So, you know, alliteration in politics. It's a great thing. Now, let's be clear. Harrison had never lived in a log cabin, and he probably never had drinking hard cider. But this starts or builds upon Andrew Jackson's strategy of making yourself look like a man of the people. And remember how I described how George W. Bush, a rich kid, son of a president, had basically made himself look like a common bot guy because he went back to his ranch in Texas, bush hogged, used folksy sayings, played dumb when he was an exceedingly intelligent man. It's what we do in politics nowadays. Regardless. In this election, voter turnout shot up from 57% to 80% of all eligible voters, and it's going to remain that way through most of the 19th century. Can you imagine, in a modern-day election, 80% of the electorate coming out to vote? We can barely get 50% of the electorate to vote. So this is a period of intense partisan um, competition, and it is also what some people believe to be the golden age of democracy, since everyone is coming out and voting. And I'm going to tell you a very quick story here, and it's the concept of the whiskey wagon. So um, American historians uh, debate about, are people really interested in the tariff or in the Second National Bank, or are they more interested in revelry and having fun? So basically on the eve of any election... What would happen was the whiskey wagon would come to town, would pick up some of the uh, lower class individuals, uh, get them drunk in a barn for about a week, and then send them out uh, on election day to uh, vote multiple times and then rile up the rest of the crowd. 
Uh, all elections or all uh, voting in this era is done very publicly. There's no such thing as a ballot box. You basically go to the local precinct. You ask for the Democratic or Whig ballot, or maybe one of the third party ballots if they have them, which uh, these, by the way, are long singular ballots. You don't choose one candidate. It's a ticket, ticket with all the candidates on it. So that's why we call it voting the ticket, meaning voting for everyone on that political party. Well, it's color-coded, so even if you're illiterate, you can still vote. You say, I support Andrew Jackson, and I would like the Democratic ticket. You take that ticket, you throw it in the ballot box, and then you say, I have voted for Andrew Jackson. Everyone behind you goes, boo, and then you get drunk, and then you go fight a bunch of people out in the street. It's a, it's an amazing time, apparently. Um, so the question becomes, do people care about politics, or do they care about the whiskey wagon and free barbecue and fighting each other in the streets? I don't know. But I th certainly think that if we had the whiskey wagon today, uh, politics would be a lot more entertaining than it is already. Anyway, Harrison wins the election of, eight, of uh, 1840, and he is inaugurated on March 9, 1841. And he gives, up to that point, the longest inaugural speech in U.S. history. There's a problem. It's very cold. It's very wet out. And he doesn't have his overcoat. As a result, he gets pneumonia and dies after only a month in office. So remember, always bring your jacket. This brings up an important question. The issue of presidential succession. This is the first president to die in office, and the Constitution says that the vice president will perform the duties of the office when the president dies. But does that mean that he is the president? Or is he still the vice president? What happens to his role as president of the Senate? There's a lot of questions here. John Tyler, though, is convinced that he is the president. So he basically has the oath of office read to him, and he becomes the president of the United States, even though many people do not agree with this. Well, John Tyler is an absolute disaster for the Wake Party, because he was a state's rightist, a strict constructionist. He vetoes all Whig proposals for a new bank and internal improvements. So the Whig Party essentially drops him. And since he'd been so critical of Jackson, the Democrats don't want him either. This is a sitting president of the United States without a party. And so Tyler looks around for an issue that might attract public support. He settles on a subject which will bring about a war with Mexico and eventually lead to the American Civil War, the annexation of Texas. Before I close, I wanted to uh, make a finer point about uh, voter turnout. And that is, when I say high voter turnout, 80% of eligible voters turning out to vote, that is still very restrictive, because that only means that white men who own a little bit of property can vote. It does not include women, does not include children, does not include Native Americans, African Americans, or any other minority group. So, while this is the golden age of turnout, it is still a very restrictive suffrage system. This concludes today's lecture. I hope you are all staying safe, making smart decisions. Make sure you are continually checking Blackboard on Tuesdays and Thursdays for lectures and PowerPoints. I will uh, be emailing the class for uh, any additional information that I can provide to you about the state of affairs that is going on across the world. If you need to contact me, please email me. Um, I'm considering getting um, Zoom just to have maybe one or two informal sessions for those of you who are 
uh, maybe in isolation and craving a little bit of uh, human interaction or just want to you know BS about history a little bit. So think about that. We'll you know nail it down as the semester goes on. But at the very least, be safe, be smart, and take care of you and yours. See you next time.